iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hello again. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft in Slough. Yes, the only tier three part of my entire county. Uh, locked in like many of you. And it's a great Monday morning as well. So I can't really tell you that I'm as upbeat as I usually am. And there's a, there's a bit of a cloud as well over today's topics. Edison Cavani, he did well for Manchester United, but he now faces an FA ban for an offensive social media post. Wolves ended their 40-year wait for a win at Arsenal, but there are now question marks, big ones, over the Premier League's concussion protocol. And Jurgen Klopp goes ballistic at the broadcasters again, to be honest. That did put a smile on my face. We'll talk Sheffield United as well. They remain without a win all season. What next, though, for their manager, Chris Wilder. To help me discuss it all, Alison Rudd, James Restall and Gregor Robertson. How guys? Hi guys, how are you doing? Very good. good. Thank you? you. Good, good. Everyone happy with their tears? You're all in London, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm disgusted by it, obviously, like many people stuck in tier three, um, but we'll get through it. We'll get through it together and at least we've got the football to talk about as well. And we're going to start on a positive this week. Edison Cavani showing us he's still got it. Two goals and an assist in his 45 minutes against Southampton, helping Manchester United turn a two-goal deficit into a 3-2 win at Southampton. Gregor, he showed not just class but everything Manchester United have lacked really in the forward areas in terms of attitude as well yeah that kind of real poacher's instinct the when you watch the replays back and of his of his goals and you saw that everyone else was standing still and he was moving that's the sign of a really kind of top quality striker and yeah I mean you know there was there was question marks when Cavani was brought to Old Trafford obviously kind of last minute sort of bit of a desperate looking uh, siren really but I think I think a lot of the things that have been said are probably true when you look at Manchester United's other striking options and their their youth and an experience and what they probably will be able to learn from from watching Cavani um, but also he's he still looks like he's got it and those those goals the set the, the, the second goal in particular was was just superb the the way he kind of stooped to get to get the header off and the movement to get across the defender and he's always always moving as well always little moments where he kind of checks to try and put the, the, the defender off uh, off balance a little bit just to buy half a yard of space and and he really is the master at that so um, yeah he's really arrived I think in, uh, for Manchester United now a win at all costs approach it seems when you, you see Edison Cavani a desire determination Alison um, and maybe a win at all costs approach as well that maybe the likes of Anthony uh, Martial and Marcus Rashford have lacked maybe that comes with experience though yeah he's well he's, what comes with experience is charisma and that sort of Zlatan like sense of, of the sort of static in the air changes because uh, someone's coming on the pitch who has enormous self-confidence. I've always felt that when I've watched Cavani, wherever he is, he looks like someone who has complete self-belief in his craft and an intensity. And when you get a team like United, the stage they're at where they've spent the dosh and there's, you know, on paper ought to be far more 
dominant than they are. Sometimes it just takes one ingredient to to lift it a bit, ignite it maybe. He's just got that something. And immediately you watch his performance when he came on and you think, oh my goodness, haven't players like Mason Greenwood got an awful lot to learn? That, you know, you, you can be uh, cosseted and looked after. And I think that's one of the good things about Solskjaer is that he, he he's good at dealing with young players and giving them a chance. And he's he, he has in the past really promoted Greenwood actually. But you can go too you can go too far with that. You have to earn it in other ways. And then you get a sort of superstar coming on the pitch. And I take what Gregor said, there were doubts that he could be a superstar. If he was going to be such a superstar, why weren't three hundred clubs after him? And why did it take so long for him to find a home? But he's still he's still got it. He's got it. He's got that thing that you can't probably can't coach. You've either got that sense of I am going to score. I want to be in charge of this game. And, you know, lucky, lucky United that they've got him. Unfortunately for Cavani, though, James, uh, he's now facing an FA investigation. He used the term Negrito. Apologies to those offended by the term. It can be used as a term of affection between South Americans. It's understood that is Cavani's defence here. He was responding to someone congratulating him on his performance uh, against Southampton. Um, it, it may be seen similarly to Bernardo Silva of Manchester City in his exchange with his teammate Benjamin at Mendy, that resulted in a one-game ban and a £50,000 fine. Those could take it to the other extreme, though, and say it's worthy of a five, six, seven, or maximum eight-game ban as well. James, how do you see this? It's a difficult one to assess you because um, we don't know. We, we can only um, assume what the context is based on what we have from uh, one screenshot of an Instagram post. Um on first looking at it, it does, as you say, I, I think it looks most comparable to the Bernardo Silva um, post, which really is just a, a crass, misguided post, which you know some people might term banterous among friends, um, which you just simply can't really afford to do if you're a if you're a high level Premier League football well if you if you're if you're a high level footballer who is going to be under the media spotlight and every everything you post on social media is going to be scrutinized um you you, you simply can't afford to make any kind of comment like that and i think the the sad thing about it is really um is that what was a, what was a brilliant performance that you guys have summed up so well and what was a what was a what was a fantastic um spearheading transformative performance for Manchester United, a player who looks like he can actually grab that team by the scruff of the neck and someone that can drag them over the line in games um, is win out, win out. Well, they face losing him. I, I, I think he probably will get at least a one game ban because if it, it is comparable to Bernardo Silva, then um, that's what should happen. But, but also um, we're, we're focusing on yet another negative for Manchester United and the, everything with the club at the moment feels very um that there is there's a feeling of chaos about it I, I was looking at the table this morning and, and and thinking if they if they lost that game they end the day eight points off the top um adrift of the champions league positions and looking at, and, and and the season just looks rudderless they win this game with a with a with a complete solo performance and they've got a game in hand, which if they win, they're two points off Tottenham in the top. 
So the whole thing just feels like it's in complete flux. And yet again, we're focusing on a negative um, when it could so easily be focused, we could so easily be and should be focusing on a positive. But one thing that really struck me was I've been writing about football for 25 years. That's quarter of a century, right? Quarter of a century. And in that time, in that time, what has staggered me is the amount of money that um, that is spent on players or the amount of wooing that is done to get a star name at a club from around the world. And it used to be the neglect was that they didn't help a player and his family settle into a new culture. They let them sit in a hotel room for far too long and get depressed and then they wouldn't play very well. They wouldn't help their families find the right schools for their children. They would invest in a player and then and then not enable them to play their best. And now it seems to me the duty of care should be if someone comes and they haven't lived uh, in the country before, you sit them down and you say, these are the pitfalls when it comes to social media. And it's not as if we don't know that language is different and terminology is different in South America. It's not as if we haven't been here before. Why on earth didn't someone think this is an asset for our club? Let's sit him down. Let's not treat him like a superstar who's allowed to do what he wants in his spare time and post what he wants to post. Sit them down and say, be really careful how you engage with fans. You, you, you could be in deep trouble if you if you just don't think about it. You can't. It's just it's just it's, it's a prime example of getting everything right on the pitch and then and then forgetting that it can be completely unraveled if you don't look after the other elements of having an individual as part of your organization you could only assume that either that framework isn't in place or that there was a naivety that people thought well he's 33 and has been sort of is as a, as a as a senior experienced figure maybe you think he should be experienced in this way too, but I, I completely take your point, Alison. I think you would you would hope that most you would hope that clubs have this kind of structure in place, and clearly this hasn't happened in this case. I, th- I think the you know the, the, it's fair to to draw comparisons with the, the Bernardo Silva post. I think there are I mean, it's very difficult to judge because there are cultural kind of differences here at play, but th- that was felt slightly different because it was images and. Uh, I know there was no, you know, Bernardo Silva was un, it was unintentional, but he was posting an image that was slightly belittling, I thought. And this, again, I know I don't know the, the kind of cultural differences in, at play with uh, the way that, that that word is used, but it just felt slightly, feels slightly different. I, I, we, we can easily say that neither player, you know, in, meant, meant in sort of offence, but I don't think that, I don't think there's any choice really. I think probably they have to, they have to punish him in some way because to not do so is just kind of sending out the wrong the wrong message, I believe. I've got some experience of being called Negrito. I was in Argentina. The first time I went to Argentina, I've been several times, but the first time I went, I was about 15 years old and I was in a town called Victoria, which is about an hour outside of Rosario. And... Um, yeah, as a young man um, visiting family, I was sort of, you know, I was there for a while. So, you know, the, the the nearest sort of young man to my age, I was sort of put with him and his group of friends. And to be fair, we had a great time. We'd go and play football. We'd go to the beach. Couldn't speak a lick of Spanish. We had the, the language of football to go and play. So I, I had a great time with them. Um, but they were all sort of, you know, guys from farms in Argentina and they called me Negrito. And after, you know, 
sort of half a dozen times, I, I sort of said like, I, you know, why do you keep calling me that? And I was getting quite angry about it. Um, and they were like, well, no, you know, we're, we're not calling you this, you know, it's a, a term of endearment here. And we're just saying that we like you almost. And, and I said, yeah, I know, but I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what you mean by it, but I know what Negro is in Spanish and it means black. And I'd rather you didn't call me a nickname that was to do with my race. I just, that's not how we work. You know, that's not how I work. I'm not South American. And they all were, you know, they apologized and said, said sorry and stopped calling me and it was fine. But it was a bit of a learning curve for me from that time. I sort of, you know, they were, they, they did explain to me what it meant. And they did say that they would call people who were fair gringo. And there were other sort of phrases in, in South America that were to do with your appearance that were just common parlance as, as nicknames. Um, but, but I, I, I do feel like, you know, when you're in another culture and, and Ed, Edison Cavani is now that, um, that he might have learned over the years that certain people from, you know, th this is a player who's been at Paris Saint-Germain. This is a player who's played football in, in Italy. This is a pl player who's traveled the world who, um, who, may who maybe should have known better. But I do think the FA need to do something about it. I, I feel it. I don't feel it's unfair. I feel it's an unfortunate situation. Yeah. And I agree with Alison that something should have been done before. Uh, in terms of education. And really, uh, Gregor, that's something that I wanted to ask you about because it's great to talk about high-profile, top-level footballers, and these are the incidents that we sort of see clearly and immediately because they've got millions of followers on various social media. But there, there must have been times in your career um, where you had to sort of have conversations around what is and isn't acceptable in the changing room or how people speak to one another that, that sort of don't get that sort of level of... Um, inspection and dissection i'm not actually sure that's true no i think i think that you kind of i've said this before on my career you go on a, a journey of what of what it becomes what is acceptable and what what isn't and that changed over the kind of 15 years i played football i think probably that's even true in in the dressing rooms of a manchester united I think that when something comes into the public sphere like this, and that's when the conversation changes. You know, it might be there might be the case that someone like Cavani or or a player who comes from 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 South America has said this this word in the past in a changing room like that, and it's been laughed off. It might be the case that he said it, and someone said, "Look, you, you know, you, listen, you can't really say that here," and they tell him why. But it's not really. There's not really a it would only be like that. It would only be a kind of an incident that that happens, and that kind of that sort of decides the 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 way that you behave in in, in a changing room afterwards. It's not like you never sat down and say this is what's acceptable and this is what's not. It only it's only that that journal only happens because of experience. Uh, but do you think that should happen? Do you think players should be sat down and told these are the sorts of at least a framework of what's acceptable. You know, other jobs, other careers have that. I think arguably when when uh, footballers at that level are so high profile, then then yes. And, you know, th this is not to say, I mean, every single year the, the PFA come and go to every single football club in pre-season and they make clear that you need to be so very careful what you put on social media. And, um, you know, I, I, again... This is, this is something that Cavani it would have been acceptable where he's from and it's not here so it's there, there are you know subtleties at play here but I think certainly James is right uh, Alison's right sorry that I think when players are this high profile and you're playing for a, a club of the size of Manchester United then probably there has to be 
some sort of education when he first arrives. Uh, well, we talk about protocols and, and rules, don't we? It seems like um, it's something we need to be more stringent on, not just when it comes to how players can behave, but also when it comes to something that has been very high profile of late, you know, head injuries, the head full stop in football. And we saw a horrible moments at the weekend. Wolves forward Raul Jimenez reportedly at the moment comfortable after surgery on a fractured skull. Uh, after a sickening clash of heads with Arsenal's David Luiz. We wish Jimenez all the well um, following his operation. Our hearts go out to people at Wolves as well. Um, Arsenal, meanwhile, insisted, though, that all safety protocols were followed regarding Luiz. He played on until halftime. He had a, a pretty severe cut uh, to his head. We could see bleeding through the bandages approaching Half time. Um, FA guidelines at the moment say a player who receives a suspected concussion should be immediately removed from the pitch and not allowed to return until the appropriate treatment had been administered. Um, although Louise wasn't concussed, it seems, it's left many people wondering at the moment why football has dragged its heels over um, modernizing its approach to head injuries. Alison, do you think we need immediate action on this? Yes. The worst thing that happened to football was when they decided to have an independent doctor available at all grounds so that um, if there was an incident, that you could have a medical uh, assessment. And that let everyone off the hook, didn't it? Oh, we've got a doctor. Something sickening has happened. Or maybe something subtle has happened. It's okay. We can say afterwards. It's fine. It's fine. There was a doctor in the house. There was a doctor in the house. It's absolutely fine. As if, and what is the point of that? The point is, let's carry on as long as we possibly can. If it means we have to get a player like David Louise and bandage his head up, even though there's a, a cut there, and he was part of um, a clash of heads that was so loud, I thought a firecracker had gone off. And I'm sure anybody in the stadium would have thought the same. So he's, he's, he is part of a very serious incident. But the mentality is, we're okay, we've ticked a box, we've got a doctor, we can bandage him up and let him carry on. In, given we are talking so much now about the long-term impact of playing football at all, the fact that you head the ball regularly, um, and we don't know all the science behind it, but just the sheer act of heading, whether it's um, a leather ball or not, have it has an impact. If you've, if you've gone in at speed like that, like David Luiz has, and then you are allowed to continue heading the ball while your brain has had a wobble wobble, it's not just about whether you're concussed or not. It's about the fact that this is dangerous to your health. And it should be that whenever there's been a clash of heads, you you bring in an extra player, an emergency sub, because it's not enough to just think we've ticked the box. We've got a doctor to say it's not concussion. He can see how many fingers I'm holding up. It's fine. It's not fine. And also it's deeply embarrassing, I think, that image of him in wearing that bandage when we know a player has been taken off to hospital it just sends out the wrong message which is oh aren't we aren't we aren't we macho isn't isn't top flight football really you know going for it and brave it's not brave it's deeply stupid and deeply damaging and I think the idea that we've ticked the box by having a doctor there was was actually ironically one of the worst things we could have done for the sport uh, Gregor, one high-profile player has said today that players need to be trusted. 
on injuries like this. Um, as an ex-player, what are your views of these protocols and that opinion? I think the, the two things can be separated. That opinion is is wrong, really. Although I would I would say that there probably would be a bit of pushback if if um, any clash of heads meant that you had to be withdrawn for a period, or you know there was a temporary substitute or whatever. So I think there would be pushback against that. Because, I mean, the, the truth is, footballers think that that they know that they're play, playing a sport that encompasses a good deal, of, a good amount of risk. Um, and I know they need to be protected from themselves, but that is the truth, and that's that is the opinion of the vast swathe of, of footballers. And David Luiz wanted to play, and if the doctor said he was he was okay continuing, he wasn't concussed, then. I'm not saying that that should be. I think possibly the protocols, undoubtedly, the pro- protocols need to change, and there needs to be a, a possibility of, of uh, temporary substitutes, and the possibility he could come back on. And the image of him, you know, the, the blood seeping through his bandage was was really was really bad. Um, it's a terrible look for the Premier League. But I think it's I think it's complicated. I, I know this ties in with with the the broader issue of of the danger of heading footballs and. And what damage footballers are doing, and you know, I've been reading this over the last last week or so, a lot of this, and you know, and there's n- new research about you know, everyone always thinks that having an old head in an old heavy, heavy ball, these old heavy leather balls, was you know, some kind of contributing factor towards towards uh, brain damage in football and from footballers. And there's new studies that say if you have if you had had twenty balls, the modern footballs, then you would more often than not fail a concussion test. So, you know, this could be something that affects me down the line. I'm starting to realise after being a defender of 350 plus games. Um, and, you know, it's easy. Footballers will say, yeah, I wouldn't do anything differently. And that's what they would all say. And I probably would say the same, but it's different if you get 30 years down the line and and your life has, has changed you know, beyond all beyond all recognition. So, you know, it's very it's it's a emotive sort of complex issue. This, but undoubtedly, the, we need to err on the side of caution in that immediate aftermath of the moment. So, if he if he has to, needs to come off and there's a temporary substitute, and then the doctors can really, you know, decide whether he's safe to play or not, and they can fix his head, his bandage properly, and possibly he can go back on the pitch. Then that has to be the way, the way forward, and and it has to happen soon. I just think football's got a hyper-masculinity issue. It, it needs to move forward with the times very, very quickly. All this, you know, a player gets a gash on his head. Oh, in my day, it was just a scratch. Player breaks a metatarsal. Oh, in my day, it was just a broken toe. It's nothing. Get on with it. You know, and the other issue that football has is, of course, not necessarily that the coaches and, and players like to play dirty, but certainly there isn't this sort of ethos of, Let's do what's right. Uh, that's the only way I can put it. And I love football, but I'll say it. I'll put it like that. Because you know that that if it's Lionel Messi in the Champions League final and the doctor says, we're going to have to take him off for the last 15 minutes and have a proper look at him as part of our head injury assessment. You know, the managers, the, the big investors in football, the big stakeholders in football say, well, we don't want that. We don't want a, a some doctor on the touchline. You know, what happened to the doctor Eva Carnero when she tried to examine 
uh, Ed Nazard was it? And, and the words said about her by Jose Mourinho and what eventually happened with her leaving the club because she chose to try and do her job in an appropriate way. You know, that wasn't even a, he- a head injury. That was just the idea of taking a player off the pitch for a period of time in a massive game. You know, I could only see that being taken to the nth degree by certain managers and certain clubs. Uh, 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 you know, if it, it is a head injury assessment and a, a long term, you know, what, 15 minutes. James, I've been massively distracted by a man at your window. <laughs> uh, I'm having the windows painted. Um, I know, but I just, I just, yeah, I just didn't expect Sorry to see sort of some sort of Spider-Man world. image of someone Sweet flying past the, yeah, your window. Right. Sorry, it just threw me, it just threw me. Sorry, On a serious me. point, no less. Um, no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, I just expect that in football, people might take the mickey, if you like. I don't trust it to do this properly. Do you, James? Well, uh, it's interesting um, you talking about the macho point, yeah, Hugh, because um, while while you were talking there, I mean, you you think about two of the most iconic images of the England football team, um, Terry Butcher with the bloodied bandage and then Paul Ince after that performance against Italy that got England qualified for the 98 World Cup with the bandage. And both those images are kind of celebrated as kind of true, amazing performances of grit and battle and determination that, you know, got England over the line in, in really arduous circumstances. And, sorry, sanding my window now. I'm just, let me move into the other room. Sorry, (laughs) this is really embarrassing. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. If it's not my bloody cat, it's sanding the window. It's just unbelievable. Hang on. Listen, you know, it's, listen, at least your social distancing, keeping him on the outside of the window. I mean, it's just, I hope, I hope he's not too high up. What floor are you on? First floor. Okay, not too bad. Right, I'm moving into the bathroom because I can chuck myself out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let me just, right. Okay. So you've got. Sit on the lobby. <laughs> Sit on the lobby. Why not? I'm on the floor. Okay. So um, I also remember when I was younger watching um, an Arsenal game in which um, Martin Keown received a head injury. He had his, he was, his, his head was bandaged. He gets back up and then I think wins three headers in really quick succession. And with every header that is met, the Arsenal fans roar in unison because it's like this is our warrior centre half who's who's battling in the face of adversity he's taken a knock but he's going to still fight to keep us on the line and I just think that that those images there are why we haven't taken this in this at all seriously as an issue this sport because it's it's seen as like fighting playing through the pain um the the other thing I think I think they're it's part of a, it, this is part of a wider issue, and you know this is this is central to what Jurgen Klopp's talking about in his debate about um, Liverpool and kickoff times, because it's all about broadcasters have paid the money on one hand versus player welfare on the other hand. And you mentioned Q Messi in the Champions League final. It's this is this is the big debate that football is still wrestling with and can't resolve. It's the fact that well we've we've paid for these rights and we. We we pay we pay we pay for these expensive players and we pay for the show. So you've got to put the show on. So that's that that for me is that for me is a, the, the 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 kind of the, the the issue behind all this and why change hasn't happened. I see your point, Hugh. That oh, it would it would be really tested 
this sense of caring for people if it was Lionel Messi in the Champions League final. But what if it was Lionel Messi in Champions League final and his his foot fell off or he, he damaged his ACL? No one would say, oh, you must carry on playing. What is it about the game that seems to think that damage to your head, which is the most important part of your body, then that's the bit that doesn't matter. It's ridiculous. Because you can't see the damage. That's the truth. Because you can't, because it's not visible to everyone. It's inside. That's the truth. You can't see the damage that's being done or might be being done. So when, when it's ambiguous, you think oh, he's okay. And that's always been the attitude in football. I'm not saying it's right, but that's, what, that's the truth. I agree. It's not right. There's sort of this this attitude of if you're standing, you can play. If you're on two feet, you can run. Get out there. You know that seems to have been the attitude over the years. Yeah, that's why it has to be taken out of the decision, out of the hands of of people with you know of clubs and players and and their staff. Essentially, even the staff would have pressure placed on them, unless there's protocols that say a player has to be removed and and checked properly. Um, I think we're I think we're traveling down that path. It's just you know it's just agonizingly, painfully slow compared to other sports as well as has been highlighted. So, um, and that is to do with football being thinking it's kind of about playing through the pain. Although you would say that about rugby, and they seem to have got to this position quicker than than us. I'm still angry, actually. <laughs> no, none of none, neither of neither of you, all three of you, seem to seem to be apologising for. Football is this because you're men and you, you deep down, deep down, you think it is a bit is a bit wimpy to come off. With no, 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 no. I'm not apologising. I totally agree with everything that you've said. I've played rugby. I played rugby for a long time. I think it's totally inadequate what happens in football. I'm all for uh, head injury assessments to last at least 15 minutes for emergency substitutes to be brought into the game, and I think it is just like you I mean I can't believe that we've reached 2020 and that isn't an integral part of football I watched the game last night I was having a long conversation with my partner around what would have been happening if I was watching Rugby Union which I'm a big fan of Um, I totally agree with what you're saying what I'm saying is one of the reasons that I think it's been slow is this sort of hyper masculine opinion around football where unless your leg's dangling off you've got to carry on and that's what I think is holding the sport back I'm not defending football I'm, I'm just trying to put into everyone's minds why I think football has been fighting against this because there is no medical reason why we wouldn't already have it. In fact, there's no real sporting or entertainment reason why we wouldn't already have it. The game didn't massively change as a spectacle when Rob Holding replaced David Luiz and it wouldn't have had he done so for just 15 minutes and Luiz had come back out. So I, I, I'm just pointing out the issue that I think football has, but I totally agree with what you're saying. It, 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 partly because in, in rugby concussions happen um, almost weekly whereas here we the the, the last the last major um, head injury of this scale was um, was Ryan Mason and and the, the a number of years can go by between these these high profile huge concussion incidents and there's it, it, it's actually quite depressing in that there seems to be these things bring up massive debate there's lots of discussion lots of proposals are put forward there's a lot of noise and then the next news item comes along and the debate is the debate is forgotten and i think i think this is really it's the only i alison i'm not apologizing for football at all i think football needs to absolutely take ownership of the issue because of the fact that it's it's so easy for this issue to be ignored i think you put your finger on it james big incidents of concussion and fractured skulls are rare-ish in football. But 
that that's that's allowed football to think it isn't a problem. I think if you if you have a clash of heads, what happens to you next is incredibly important because your brain is susceptible at that point. I mean, I would probably go further if I was in charge of the world. I would say if you have a clash of heads, you leave the pitch and you don't you don't you don't you don't re-enter the game. You just don't. And it might be that you need three months off. But that's me being very uh, maybe very maternal. But I just think, like like Gregor says, you can't you can't see the brain wobbling around inside your head. But we've accepted that you 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 can't see a hamstring tear. But we we and a player like Virgil Van Dijk when he went off with a ruptured ACL, he walked off completely without a limp. But everyone accepted something wrong with his knee. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. No one had a go about him being a wimp. Yeah, but he it's, knew he, he knew he could play. To. He knew he couldn't play. I was only providing the context. I agree with you as well, Alison. The point is the player doesn't know he, it's dangerous for him to, to go back out there. And he might believe that he's fine to do so. In fact, they, they often do. So the difference is, it's like you think, you think as a player, I can, I can carry on here. I'm fine to carry on. I've got a knock on the head. I feel okay now. I can carry on. Whereas if you do your ACL, you pull a hamstring, you try to run, you go, oh no, I can't play here. That's that. That's part of you know. Again, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but that that also holds it back too. It's like the whole attitude within football is, unless you can, unless you can't carry on, you you don't come off. All the more reason then for the rules to change immediately and for it to be taken out of debate. Just do it. Yeah, I I totally agree. Not just the the protocols during the match as well. You know, other sports have a much better return to play protocol for people who have had either concussion or, or even a knock to their heads, you know, assessments during the week building up to a game. If you don't pass them, then you're not allowed back out to play. We've seen players in other sports miss months, you know, until they're allowed to, to turn to, to return to the field of play. And I think something similar definitely needs to happen in football. Um, let's round our conversation up there. But again, we wish Raul Jimenez um, all the best with his recovery. Uh, our thoughts go to his family, of course, and the, and those at Wolves. And hopefully we do see him back out there sometime soon, fit and fully healthy. And before we move on, I'd just like to remind you, um, there is a flash sale currently going on. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. You'll get 50% off for six months. The sale, though, ends tonight, Monday the 30th of November at midnight. You can go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the game podcast from the Times. Hugh Wilson Croft, James Restall, Gregor Robertson, and Alison Rudd with you on this uh, Monday morning. We've discussed some serious issues already 
And it's pretty desperate times for the Blades at the moment. After defeat against West Brom at the weekend, Sheffield United became just the third side in top flight history to gain as few as a single point, as little as a single point from their first 10 games. They're winless in all competitions this season. They're five points adrift at the bottom of the table. Gregor, I'll start with you on this one because I know you uh, are a fan of Chris Wilder. Let's say that one. You've got a working relationship, but it looks ominous for him at the moment. Uh, It looks ominous for Sheffield United. I don't know if it looks ominous for him. I think it would be pretty remarkable if he was to be even if his position was even to be called into question, really, I know that probably we will. <laughs> but um, and the longer this goes on, that becomes more and more understandable. But what he's done in the last few years at Sheffield United is is extraordinary. Um, there's no doubt that this is uh, getting pretty serious for them, though. Um, I think when you look at their their team, I was just you know they dominated that game. Really, they had. I think they had. What did they have? They had twenty one shots. And some of the misses were just extraordinary. Musa is in particular at the end. Um, so it, goals have always been an issue. Even last season, they were an issue for Sheffield United, but they were solid and they, they had that system that was new to the Premier League and was a, a surprise for a lot of teams. And they, now they seem to have got around that. But also, there's huge holes in it. They, they've had that was that system was created in League One to deal with the fact that teams sat off against them and they needed to create an extra overloads down the down the flanks and that's no longer the case in the Premier League and they no longer have the players that have played that system for so long and that Jack O'Connell is injured Ender Stevens has been injured a long time so the left side of that where a lot of the combinations happened are gone um, and it's just not functioning properly and I wonder whether they might need to look at a change of system because it, they don't have the players to play at the moment and it's not functioning properly. And teams have also, on top of that, teams also know what they're all about now. So I think they need to do something to change uh, the way they play to try and get out of this rut, personally. Agree, James? Does he need to change what has worked for him so well last season? It's, the, uh, it's, the, it's, it's, it's another string to the bow of a coach, isn't it? If you can change your plans and have a plan B that works effectively. Um, I do think they've been, I do think they've, it, it, they really have been hit hard in, in, in more than one way. I mean, they've lost Dean Henderson, the goalkeeper. Um, we mentioned O'Connell. I also think you look at some of the, you look at some of the strikers who were available in, uh, in the summer and you've seen teams that were kind of around the area where sort of around the, part of the table where Sheffield United are Aston Villa sign Ollie Watkins who's started like a train and Newcastle sign Callum Wilson who's who's um who's 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 hit the ground running as well and 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 Rian Brewster just hasn't done so um and uh, it's just, he he's Rian Brewster is is right at the start of his career and and is and is yet to be you know, we we don't quite know what kind of a player he'll be at the top level and and it's 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 a hugely difficult situation he finds himself in. Um, so I think there are, I, I, I think it probably in the short term, they might have to change system. I'm not quite sure what a system would be that they'd have to change to. Um, but, but, but I think they are, uh, they're, they're, the, the situation they find themselves in with injuries, players bedding in and lack of a threat, I think they probably have to, yeah. 
Alison, how much do you agree with the romance of football that Chris Wilder, given the job he's done so far, gets as much time as he wants? He can decide when he leaves because he's given us such great times. Um, do you agree with that? I, I have to tell you, I'm not in that camp. <laughs> uh, I think Chris Wilder is in that camp. He's pointed out quite recently that he's not been sacked in 20 years. And I'm sure he's very proud of the fact and it would be deeply ironic if his first sacking came at a club where when he took over in 2016, they were in League One and they were 11th. I mean, that is, you've got to admit, Hugh, that in itself is romantic. I think the problem is, I think you should definitely be given the chance to find the solution. Um, and it's really easy from the outside to look in and see what's gone wrong because they started out in the Premier League with everybody having them as uh going straight back down, let alone rising up and threatening to qualify for Europe. And they did that partly because they got lucky with, um, they were able to have a solid defence, same defence, and mostly the same midfield week in, week out. Uh, He's not been able to do that this year for the reasons uh, James and Regra have pointed out. But also, you know, they, they drew or won 10 of the games that they went behind in last season. And you do that because you have this um, uh, powerful sort of sense of everyone thinks we're rubbish, but we we, we know what we've got. We, we're, we're special in that we haven't got the money, but we've got the camaraderie. And it sort of snowballed in a way for them, didn't it? That, that sense that they could do no wrong, that um, Wilder relished telling people they were the, the most they spent the least money. I mean, he's the manager on the lowest salary. But this is all last year's romance, seeing as you put in that word here. It's it's last year's fairy tale. And he needs probably to create another narrative. And I don't think he's done that. And but although he's he's been really unlucky. But then every every manager's had to do juggle injuries. But he's just he's been unlucky that he's he's got to find a new narrative for the team and whether changing the formation will be enough, I don't know. But I think it probably needs to do with the mentality of when you come up and nobody knows who you are, everyone assumes you're going to be rubbish. Now everyone's assuming, everyone did assume they were going to be rather good and they've not handled that very well. He does have a new narrative. He does have a new target because no team in this position has ever survived in the top flight. So he certainly has one record to break if, if he wants to set that as a target at this point, then he can. Um, but I wonder whether it's up to the hierarchy at Sheffield United, those that run the club to decide where they want to be. You know, given that this is a coronavirus affected world, if you can stay Sheffield United in the Premier League for four or five years, you can really change your standing and position as a club in English football for the long term, I think, over this next period where the economy in every sector will be massively affected. Um, Gregor, if you ran the club, do you do you just keep the faith? You know, do you believe that Chris Wilder is the man to turn things around, given what he's already done? Or do you take a stronger view that you have to stay up at all costs? I'm going to say you keep the faith, obviously. <laughs> but uh, unless it becomes kind of toxic or... You know, these relationships between a manager and a club do kind of sometimes become broken beyond repair. Uh, And then look, we're miles away from that happening. But, uh, you know, I even reference, you wouldn't think Pochettino at Spurs. That was just an example of something where a lifespan came to its natural conclusion between the the pair of them. And, you know, Sheffield United are miles away from that. And I would even think that even if they were going down with a whimper, he should have the opportunity to stay and... 
but that, it would depend what the atmosphere was around. And it's difficult to gauge, you know, it's not difficult to gauge that just now, but it's difficult to, the fans are right behind them, but obviously with, there's no fans inside the stadium. It's different to see what the atmosphere really would be like at Bramall Lane just now. Um, I think it would be supportive because they know that this has been an extraordinary journey, uh, extraordinary journey for them. And um, he's a fighter. Like, as I said this before in the podcast, I've been in this position with him as manager at Northampton Town and he tries anything, like absolutely anything he can think of or lay his hands on, changes of personnel, systems. Uh, I've said this before on the podcast one time on a Friday night on a way trip, he, he told us all to come down and we had, had a beer before the night before a game just to kind of try and relax everyone's spirits and yeah, he, he he just tries everything, and I, I still think they I still think they can turn it around. I do. I think that they're creating they're creating chances. They just need they need a bit they need someone a striker to find a bit of a a bit of confidence. And it's hard to see whether that's going to be Ollie McBurney. It's hard to see that's going to be Burke. I think really they really need to hope that Brewster comes good because he's a he's an excellent young player. It just needs you know he's just very young and and. Uh, it's a big move for him in his career. So, but it's, we also this also puts into context how amazing their achievement was last season. You spoke about those players, Ollie Watkins, Matty, Matty Cash is another one. The two that went to Aston Villa, they probably got double their money there. At Sheffield United, they're paying twenty or thirty thousand pounds a week, and the average Premier League salary is sixty plus. So, you know that that's the other side of the coin here. They're being priced out. Anthony Robinson, the left back, went to Fulham. Chris Wilder had them and he was showing them around the training ground saying this is where you'll fit in if you, you've got to try and get past Enda Stevens at left wing back. He'd have been a great player to have just now. Fulham rang up and said here's another 10 or 15 grand a week or whatever and he went to Fulham. So they are, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're fishing in a different, a different pond here. They're kind of trying to, trying to find the young players, the young up and coming players or the best players in the championship and they've not all come good. So He's got a job on his hands, undoubtedly, but I think they need to stick with him and, and keep the faith. One um, one thing, we've talked about how um, this is probably going to be, or it's looking like it'll be a low points total to win the Premier League. I also think it'll be a low points total to stay up, looking at the table after 10 games. It already looks like um, West Brom, Burnley, Fulham and Sheffield United, the teams in single digits, um, yeah. are... They're not. They're not quite cut adrift, but they are. They they look like they will be the four teams that that could well be down there. And I think the fact that yes, they've only got one point after ten games, but they are only five points off safety. And that's and if and and if the if the inconsistent form of those teams down there with them continues, and they become a a, a four, it could it could be a mini league to stay up down there. And um, we're certainly it's certainly not going to look like a sort of a a high thirties total to stay up this year. What a way to describe consistently rubbish football. Inconsistent. I like it. I like it. Giving them a lot of credit there. <laughs> consistently bad is now inconsistent. Um, inconsistent. Exactly. Uh, the next five games, Alison, Leicester, Southampton, Manchester United, Brighton and Everton. I think if he hasn't got a siege mentality yet after those five games, it will certainly be entrenched. <laughs> Yeah, but what I would say from what we've seen of how Wilder operates in the Premier League, they're not going to, those fixtures won't make him tremble. And I don't think he's the sort of manager that thinks, oh, we know they're not the points we expect to get. I think he'll treat each game as 
affording him an opportunity to see a way of maximising whatever mistakes the opposition make and trying to just trying to find a, a morale boost from picking up a draw, maybe a win from those. I don't. I think that's the good thing about him. I think too often when managers are, are under pressure, they start trotting out the, oh, you know, we lost, but that wasn't a game we were expecting to get points from. I think that's just a load of rubbish and really backfires on what, what message you're giving the players. Even if you're giving them a different one privately, don't say that. Treat every game as an opportunity because as James pointed out, nobody's, nobody's quite... Yeah, you know, got a stranglehold on the game. No one's looking imperious. And I think no matter who you are, with a bit of a bit of planning, you, you can find a weakness. So I suspect he probably sees that run of games as an opportunity rather than quite scary. Uh, Chris Wilder's name did come up at the weekend before Sheffield United were in action. In fact, a full day before they were in action. Uh, his good pal Jurgen Klopp losing his call at the weekend. Should we call it that? He was annoyed, of course, once again by playing on Wednesday night in the Champions League. Then at 12.30 on Saturday in the early kickoff. And after his draw against Brighton, of course, stung by a late VAR decision. Uh, he then went head-to-head with BT Sports' Des Kelly. People loved this. People absolutely loved this. It wasn't your average uh, post-match interview. Klopp called Chris Wilder selfish when talking about decisions over um, not adopting five substitutions this season. He said congratulations to the broadcasters after James Milner's hamstring injury. It wasn't Jurgen Klopp as we know him, but but we do know him to be quite feisty and that element of him did definitely come out, but usually he's he's a little bit more smiley. Um, Alison, I'll start with you. Um, what did you make of what Jurgen Klopp had to say before we talk about what great TV it was? <laughs> well, first of all, first of all, Hugh, you say this isn't the Jurgen Klopp we know, but it might not be the Jurgen Klopp in front of the cameras too often, but in post-match huddles, he's like that quite a lot. In fact, so you you might ask a question, and if he's not particularly if he's in a rush and he's not in the mood, he will he will throw it back at you uh, in in quite a sarcastic, intellectual yes, but slightly sarcastic way. He likes prodding. He likes pushing on why you're asking a question. Um, he can be defensive. This is not new, and he's been like that the whole time he's been at Liverpool. To be honest, he most of the time he's. Very jolly, likes a giggle, and everybody loves him. But he's he's always been capable of this sort of spiky interview. Um, and I think there's people wondering if he's brought the game into disrepute. That's utter rubbish. He's not. He's simply using his high profile to alert people to the fact that it's a big struggle getting your team ready for a 12.30 kickoff when you're juggling European fixtures as well. I have no problem at all with him raising that. I have no trouble at all with him being sarcastic and pointing his finger at the questioner. And yes, it's good telly. But you go through every point he raised. They are worthy of discussion. Gregor? (laughs) It was good telly, definitely. Um, (laughs) He's good, Des Kelly, as well. I think think I have sympathy for him in one, one respect in that it's a it is a hell of a turnaround, and this season is is relentless. And I know lots of people. You know, there's been articles written about this, and you look at the comments and people saying they're paid two hundred grand a week. It's a few hours earlier, you know, to get out of your bed or whatever. I think it is just a kind of psychological thing of it getting home and then only having 
two days and then up straight away and playing the game. It's kind of, I think it's just the relentlessness of it. So I have sympathy for that, but I have no sympathy for him in the, the substitute shout. And he was saying that, I think he said that he would bring off Andy Robertson in that game if to, to rest him if he had the five substitutes. And I, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not buying that at all. I think, I don't think, I think that falls down fundamentally when you look at the substitutes that, that most clubs make and they're, they're only really done tactically or if they're in the lead to kind of rest players, but not in a game like that. It was finally, finally poised against Brighton. So, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's clearly, his ire is, is up at the moment and he thinks he feels like the, the world is against him, but he probably didn't go about it in the in the best way, basically blaming the interviewer for James Milner's hamstring. <laughs> I mean, even blaming the broadcasters, to be perfectly honest, obviously I'm biased on this. Not like, unlike Alison, of course, I'm totally biased on this because I, I work for, for a broadcaster, but the reality of the situation is it's a, a business transaction. The clubs were happy to allow um, because they make a, a big portion of money for it. And I understand Jurgen Klopp's view that that deal was done with a normal football season in mind, not a, a shortened season due to coronavirus in mind. But what he's asking for, I think, and I think Des Kelly raised the point, he's asking the wrong person to help him in this regard. You know, do you really expect the broadcasters to say, oh, even though we've paid £9 million for this slot per week, we're not going to have the biggest team in the country in it? You know, of course they are if they get the opportunity to do that. And I think Des Kelly was right to say, speak to your CEO, get them to speak to the Premier League, and then get the Premier League to have a conversation with the broadcasters. Because I think you're probably going about it in the wrong way by pointing the finger at, in particular, very strangely, Des Kelly uh, in the post-match interview. I thought that was a little bit harsh on Des, who I'm sure had no input into any of these conversations to begin with. Um, so I thought that was a, I thought that was a little bit strange. I, look, I liked what Jurgen Klopp had to say, and I liked the fact he backed his corner. Again, I think it's unfair to call Chris Wilder selfish for saying that he didn't want um, five subs because I think there's a reality to this in that Jurgen Klopp doesn't even use, let's be honest, doesn't use three subs. You know, the idea that I think it was said recently by Jamie Carragher that, you know, he just wants the five subs for the matches where Liverpool are three nil up at half time or whatever, then he'll use all five. It's like, well, then you're not really, you don't really need these substitutions to help players with their fitness. Then it's not about managing their workload. It's simply about resting them when you've got the chance. You know, I think it was put to Jurgen Klopp recently that he didn't make those subs in the game against Manchester City. He said, well, we're trying to win the game. And I'm with Gregor on this. I think that would be the same every week. It's having the opportunity to rest them if if you can. That's really mm. what he wants. But he, he has the opportunity to change the team entirely before the game. And he is making a lot of changes between each game. So obviously they've been hit really badly with injuries and I have some sympathy. I have sympathy for the players too. I said this at the start of the season. In fact, when the fixtures were released, I wrote a piece and I think the headline was like, all the best lads. Because <laughs> mm. I just could not picture. I think I've played more than forty games in a season, something like twice in fifteen years, and like that was just in a normal schedule. And uh, these guys are going to play play fifty and sometimes up to sixty, and, and in a shorter window. It's really is people have little sympathy for them, but you know this is a ridiculous season. So I have sympathy for the players. I just think that the substitute thing is another issue altogether, and. You know, ultimately, he needs to be looking at, he needs to be having these conversations with his executives about this. Mm. James? 
the reality of this is is that particularly in this in this uh, in this era of pandemic which um, in which the financial realities are very clear there is a huge monetary value to that 1230 slot it's it's prime time viewing in china it's prime time viewing in dubai and um, i think Klopp can speak to his executives and they can have the conversation with the premier league but i don't think there's any any realistic prospect of, of, of that 12 30 slot disappearing i'm not saying whether i agree or disagree with that I, I'm, I'm purely stating that as fact and the the, the, the problem here is uh, the, the, the problem here is is the fact that particularly in this era where um, the revenue streams are shut off for a lot of clubs in terms of fans aren't back in um, they're beholden to the to the broadcasters ever, ever, even more so and I, I'd be I'd be staggered if when the next round of, uh, of of TV negotiations take place which I think starts early next year um, that there's a concerted effort to get the 1230 slot um, taken off the table um, and also I think it's I can the, the, the one area where I can see that have slight um, sympathy with the broadcasters is that when you pay that premium, you want to have the best teams in the slot. And the way that 12.30 kickoff works is that I think of the 32 matches BT have, 20 of them are what they call second pick matches. This weekend, um, wisely or unwisely, given it was a boring <laughs> draw, but Chelsea Tottenham was the, was the first pick match. Um, and then you can't pick any of the teams who've been in the Europa League on the Thursday, because then that would be a, a Thursday-Saturday lunchtime match. Imagine the furore if that happened. Um, so really, there's there's very little option in terms of the broadcasters getting their value for money. So it, it's it's a it's, it's a really really tricky issue. I, I just think it's a. I understand why Klopp is so frustrated, and I have sympathy with him. But this isn't a fight he's going to win. Just as we were talking about, the mindset has to change when it comes to head injuries. Surely the mindset has to change about how we feel about. The Premier League as um, a family, if you like, and how they represent us abroad and what do we want? What, what are we actually after? So if a team is competing in the Champions League, there's never, ever been the philosophy here that you help them compete better in the Champions League by protecting their kickoff times. There is this, it's <laughs> equally a lot of money is spent by BT Sport on covering Champions League games. So in the long term, they are they will earn more money if the um, English clubs go to the latter stages of that competition. And yet by showing Liverpool at 12.30 lunchtime, you're undermining the chances of them reaching the latter stages of the competition because you're making life incredibly difficult for them. And um, this isn't me making that up. Anyone who works in, in uh, sports science and sports psychology will tell you that is a ridiculous turnaround to travel down to Brighton for a 12.30 kickoff and what you have to do to prepare for that game. But it requires something other than this short-termism, which is we've spent a lot of money. Our audience requires a 12, our worldwide audience requires a 12.30 kickoff and a big name club. But down the line, your BT are slightly shooting themselves in the foot because it, it means clubs like Liverpool might struggle when they ought to be 
blossoming in, in the <laughs> competition oh, come on, they Alistair. spent a lot of money on. Alison, <laughs> come on. I said that completely seriously. How very dare you chuckle at the end of it. Klopp was saying players at the players at tea time on uh, players at tea time on, uh, on 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 Saturday instead. But I mean, all, all that would do is just I mean there's less recovery time for the Tuesday match against Ajax. I, I think the, the the wider problem here is that there are the, the games are happening far too thick and fast in this crazy season, and there are too many people that need to there there are, there, are, there are too many hoops that teams are having to jump through I'd, I'd have i'd have scrapped the league couple together for this season for example um and spread the yeah, European yeah. matches out and uh i'd have um you know th- 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 there are more creative ways we could have we could have played the season um but it's just it, again i mean it, that would have been probably the 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 most palatable decision because the amount of money we're not we're talking is is not huge with the league cup whereas there are bigger it's for the EFL it is for the EFL but that's that can be that can be resolved i think more more easily and more creatively and there is you know there that 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 could i, mean, I know there is a we're still with interminable talks about a bailout but that 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 could have been factored in um quite that could have been factored in quite conceivably i just think it's the, the whether we're talking about 12 30 5 45 it's it, it's it's a wider problem of the fact that we're trying to cram too many games into a shorter window. I do think football's at risk of, I mean, just coming across as totally out of touch so far. I mean, James Milner tweeting after the game as well about the VAR decision. You know, it's clear and obvious we need a serious discussion about VAR. Sure, I'm not alone in feeling like they are falling out of love with the game in its current state. I mean, James... There are people, I mean, just think of what is going on in the world. You know, there are people, yeah, I mean, there are people losing their lives. There are people who have lost their jobs. There are people who can barely leave the house. And, you know, the issue is that you're falling out of love with the game, even though you get to play it, travel the world doing it, paid well to do it. You know, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have an opinion. He's allowed his opinion and he's put a lot into the game of football. But I just think he seems out of touch when he comes across like that. You know, VAR is another total conversation, but there are so many bigger things happening in the world, you know, and it's not just James Milner. I think I'm being harsh on him by even pointing him out, but Klopp, Guardiola, Bielsa. I mean, it just seems to be constant moaning so far this season. And look, everyone's always got a complaint in football. There's always something to argue about. There's always something to have an opinion on, but this just comes across as being totally out of touch. Or am I wrong? Oh, Hugh, Hugh, that is totally unfair. We are having a long podcast talking about football. Someone else might walk in and say, why are you talking about football when, when there are people dying in the world? People, if you're in if you're in a job, you talk about your job. And he's quite right. VAR is killing football. What, what would we have done? What would we have done in this last, this last year without the distraction of football? I, I, I don't like these comparisons being drawn personally either. I think, yeah. There's nothing wrong with with diving headfirst into the minutiae of football, despite what's going on in the world around us. And yes, there are more important things. I think we all know that. I don't mind there being I don't mind there being an argument about VAR. I, I, so excuse me if you think I was over the top. It, it's fine to have an opinion on VAR. It's fine to have conversations about football. But but let's be realistic here. It's not going to kill the game of football. You shouldn't be falling out of love with the thing that you've had uh, made a great career out a of over the last 15 that, years. Though. Because, because, because a penalty got given against you. He wasn't tweeting about it when it was other clubs. Suddenly, when his club fought, has fallen victim to it, it's now killing the game of football. That's over the top, man. 
you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's not like every club hasn't been affected by VAR. Plenty have, you know, and I, that's what I mean. I'm just saying, just be realistic about our arguments. Like we are each and every week measured in our conversation. And that's all I'm asking for. I'm not saying have no opinion on it. I'm saying let's be measured about it. Marcelo Bielsa and Pep Guardiola as well have used similar phrases around the sport they love being killed by various things, whether that be a lack of substitutes, whether that be VAR, whatever it is. And all I'm saying is it's a difficult period for football. I think the same, I think, um, uh, um, excuse me, I think Jurgen Klopp said that to Des Kelly. You know, it's tough times. There are no fans in the ground. And Des Kelly sort of said, yeah, but you're using this time to talk about the broadcasters. It's a difficult time. And I think it was sort of underlined. There are still, even though it is a difficult time for Liverpool and even though it is a short turnaround for them and their players are under a lot of pressure, there are still bigger things. But make sure you're with us on Monday morning for the <laughs> Thursday morning, excuse me, for the next uh, episode of the podcast because you wouldn't want you not to be with us for any of these football discussions. Um before we go, I think we should give some credit to Chorley of the National League at North. What a great result for them uh, in the FA Cup second round, beating Peterborough United away from home as well. Two goals to one. Fantastic for them. But they've, they've hit the headlines, not just for the result, but because of the way they celebrated. Their post-match song was unusual to say the least. Have a listen to this. <laughs> You know, pretty good. They're not at the end. <laughs> a, a romantic song, you know, um, forlorn. You know, I mean, the Gre- Gregor changing room post-match or pre-match songs. Have you ever heard anything so emotional like that? I have, yeah, yeah. I remember once um, we played. Oh, it was a comeback. <laughs> Get a second rendition. <laughs> uh, we had a game again. I was at Chesterfield and uh, playing Lincoln. And we're in the hotel. It was a night game, and we're kind of having a pre-match. And one of the players, Steve Fletcher, big former Bournemouth striker, he was at Chesterfield at the time. He he got his iPod out, and everyone chose a song to play before the game. Um, and we we were three 0 up by half time, uh, but just because everyone was absolutely bouncing around in the change room, and probably the the most emotional was uh, flying flying without wings by by Westlife and everyone was having Great a big song. thing along to that. Great <laughs> so song. The, so this, this, uh, mine was uh, Step On by Happy Mondays and doing a bit of the best dance around the changing room. So um, it was it was an eclectic bunch, but that, that playlist stayed with us for quite a long time. It went a really good run. So it can help. Bit of, bit of spirit in the changing room before the game and afterwards. I don't know about you, Alison. Largely now when I'm in football grounds, I think the playlist coming out of the changing room is absolutely horrendous. And I'm 34 <laughs> years old and I still think it's horrendous. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder whether players just do it to put one another off or to have a bit of a prank because it's just... Yeah, it's either sort of really loud um, house music or um, a, a few players get grime on the playlist or some sort of heavy metal. You know, and it, it's, it's eclectic along those lines, sort of aggressive, loud seems to work at most clubs. Yeah, no, it's in, it's, I think the power plays at work are interesting because if you talk to um, managers, they'll say there's a player who's sort of designated as the one who's allowed to pick the music. And you think, well... What's the politics behind that then? Is it because 
it's his, you know, it's his apology for not being made captain or is, is, does he does he know something about an affair you're having or <laughs> what, what, you know why 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 is one person allowed to as you say inflict their um the heavy boom 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 on everybody else usually if they do you know if they don't perform then they're removed pretty swiftly so you know you need to it's actually quite a lot of pressure if you're the designated iPod guy I remember doing an interview once with Jamie Curiton when he was like he was I think he was 40 years old and playing for Dagenham and Redbridge and they'd just drawn Everton in the FA Cup third round and he was saying that he was still at 40 the, the Dagenham and Redbridge dressing room DJ and would still turn up with a with like a a, 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 a a sort of an old school hi-fi and CDs and like that genuinely half the Dagenham and Redbridge dressing room were like what are these this what are they <laughs> and uh, and it's um I mean, I, I, uh, the, this, could, this is a whole other subject, but I mean, the one, what, one of my pet hates in football is the, um, is, the, is the goal music when clubs play a song when a goal goes in. I just think it's just tacky and awful. When I was, when I was younger, Leighton Orient did it for a season and they decided, the players decided among themselves that um, they devised a dance to the awful song We Know Speak Americano, which was in the Inbetweeners film. <laughs> And uh, they decided, they put it on the, on the club website, they had a video, they showed the dance, and they said, after every goal this season, we will do this dance. Lasted about one, two games into the season, but the music lasted the whole season. And <laughs> one, of my, one of the saddest moments was us scoring a, an amazing equaliser against Arsenal in the FA Cup fifth round uh, to earn a replay at the Emirates. And that abomination blares out as Jonathan Tahue <laughs> celebrating. It's just not on. <laughs> Bar has had an impact on that, um, James, because I've noticed <laughs> occasionally now they, 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 the, the guy who in charge in the stadium puts on the da 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 and then he cuts it when he realises it's going to go to VAR. So you have these sort of uh, those odd sort of three note celebrations and everyone goes, oh, okay, maybe it's VAR. You see another Lovely example of how VAR, VAR is killing football. Yeah, another <laughs> exactly another example of how VAR is destroying the game. You can't even have a rave up anymore due to VAR. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Alison Rudd, James Restall, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being uh, with me on the podcast so far this week. Before I go, let me just remind you, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast subscriber you use and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. We've currently got a flash sale. You can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times. You'll get 50% off for six months. The sale ends tonight, Monday the 30th of November at midnight. Just go online, search the times.co.uk forward slash the game. And there's only really one way to leave you because, you know, we have a little post-match sing song here as well. Married now I heard that your dreams came true VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen VoiceOver on settings So you can navigate it just by listening Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.